said? Amen. Amen. What a great prayer. Thank you for singing that. Let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 12 as we continue our study of the life and ministry of Jesus according to the Apostle John. John chapter 12. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand with me as I read this passage of Scripture from John chapter 12, beginning at verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of the light. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Last week's message, you'll remember, was titled, A Not-So-Triumphal Entry. It was, it was a Sunday when Jesus approached the city of Jerusalem. Just five days of his incarnational life, it was about to come to an end. He would breathe his last breath, so 
Knowing the rest of the story, it seemed to me to be an appropriate title. Jesus was more like a, well, a, a dead man walking than a, making a triumphal entry. Let me ask you, how would you live if you knew your death was imminent? Some of you have survived that possibility. You have come face to face with the end of your life. You've faced your own mortality. You have faced the possibility of taking your last breath. I was 25 years old. Cynthia was just 18. I had graduated from Bible college with a Bachelor of Religious Education, majoring in pastoral studies with a Bachelor of Religion Education degree. We were married that summer, and we accepted a position as associate pastor at Oxford Baptist Church. And I started my first day of work on December 1st, 1982. December 2nd, we received a phone call from University Hospital in London, Ontario. They wanted to see me again immediately. Um, we had been trying to discover a reason for hearing loss on my left side. And on this December 6th, I was headed into surgery to remove a tumor on my acoustic nerve. A couple of weeks ago, while visiting my father, he had mentioned that he was involved in a discussion with a friend of his, and they were talking about what was the, the most significant relational moment in their lives. Who's made the greatest difference? For my dad, as he tells it, he was talking to me that morning, he said, it was that morning at University Hospital when he had snuck into the hospital early just before I was ready to go into surgery. Apparently I told him that I didn't think I was going to make it. And he grabbed me by the arm and said, you're gonna make it. I can remember being concerned and wanting his assurance that he would look after Cynthia if something happened to me. Now having three sons of our own, I can kind of understand how difficult that conversation must have been for my dad. And I'm delighted to inform you this morning that I made it. <laughs> and I'm glad that I'm here. A number of years ago, I picked up a book titled Preparation for Death, Prayers and Consolation for the Final Journey. It's a small paperback written by a Roman Catholic theologian back in the 1700s. And there was one little phrase that kind of caught my attention and I've referred to again and again over the years. He wrote this, the most important thing we can do in this life is to prepare for our death. 
Let me ask you again. How would you live if you knew your death was imminent? This morning's message will focus on Jesus' words recorded in verses 23 to 28. Jesus knew his death was imminent. And because as I studied this passage of scripture from verse 20 to the end of verse 36 this week, I, I don't know whether how many have read letter Bible, versions of the Bible. You'll see Jesus' words. And as I came to this particular section, I just thought it was so full that we needed to focus on these verses, 23 to 28 this morning. And that's why I've titled this message, Continuing with the End in Mind, Part 1. Because we'll come back, we'll return to this section, this, this episode next week, to finish it. But Jesus, knowing his death was near, was prompted to define some realities. And I would say two of the realities were specific to him, and three of them are specific to his followers. But the ones relating to him specifically also have implications for you and I. Max Dupree, in his book, um, Leadership is an Art, has a leadership axiom that goes something like this. The first responsibility of leadership is to define reality. The last is to say thank you. And in between the two, you are both servant and debtor. Here this morning, we want to hear from Jesus, our leader, as he defines reality in this critical moment of his life. Here we find Jesus defining reality with the end in view, clearly in view. And notice prompted to do so by some Greeks who approached Philip, wishing to see Jesus, according to verse 21. The presence and initiative of these Greeks, you know, it's significant, clearly. Think of the context in which this is happening. Jesus has just been met on the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem by a large crowd celebrating his arrival. Granted, his own disciples, they were somewhat clueless. And, of course, the, the Pharisees were there as well, complaining and bickering amongst themselves, voicing their concerns. But for the most part, we have this large crowd celebrating Jesus' arrival. And then the Apostle John inserts this commercial break. He introduces these Greeks from out of nowhere, non-Jews, who were wanting to see Jesus. Feels like an intrusion, like, who let these guys in? And the request is in the present tense, suggesting there was a, a continuing appeal. They kept on asking. Philip was not going to escape. Now, there are a few suggestions as to why they approached Philip. Apparently, Philip and Andrew were the only two of the twelve who had Greek names. 
Others have suggested it was because Philip was from Bethesda in Galilee. It was like the Danforth in Toronto, a community that has been influenced greatly by a Greek population. An area in the province of Galilee also had a Greek influence. And that would also explain why the Apostle John included the qualifier, Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. There's also the possibility that Greek, that Philip coming from this area, could have been the most fluent in Greek. But as far as the biblical text is concerned, we're not told where these Greeks came from or even why Philip was the one that they approached. What we are told is that they were among those going up to worship at the feast. So although they were non-Jews, Gentiles, perhaps Jewish converts, proselytes, but certainly they were God-fearers who were coming to worship Israel's God. Perhaps John doesn't want his readers to ever lose sight of the fact that that Jesus did not come to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him, Jew and non-Jew alike. This is not the first time that the Apostle John has introduced Gentiles into the story. Remember the woman at the well in Samaria? How about that centurion with a sixth son in Capernaum? This is good news for you and I, because I doubt if there's many people here in the room this morning that could boast of a Jewish heritage. These Greeks appeared, voiced their desire to see Jesus, and then disappear from the narrative never to be heard from again. But not before prompting a response from Jesus. Look at verse 23. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Anything unusual about that statement? Turn back with me to John chapter 2, verse 4. Jesus talking to his mother in verse 4. He said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Flip over to Chapter 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. How about chapter 8, verse 20? These words he spoke in the treasury 
as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Do you see it now? His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. But here in John chapter 12, verse 23, the hour has come. Folks, this is a watershed moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. Eugene Peterson's interpretive translation of this verse reads, Time's up. The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is the first time in the Gospel, according to John, when the time is now. Reality number one. Jesus' glorification was time-sensitive. Last Sunday evening at our fall seminar, one of our elders, Dan Witt, taught a chapter from Paulie Little's book on God, theology proper. We learned that God has a decreed will and a permissive will. There are some things that God has determined will happen, and nothing will stop them. They are decreed. And then there are other things that he allows or permits to happen. We need to understand that nothing happens that catches him by surprise. And everything that happens works towards the accomplishment of his plans and purposes. That's what it means to believe in the sovereignty of God. The hour has come is an acknowledgement of God's decreed will for the life and ministry of Jesus. Here's some food for thought. We talk about, for your information, FYI. This is a FFT. Food for thought. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9. We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. Proverbs 19.21 Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. How about Job chapter 14, verse 15? You've decided the length of our lives. God's decided. You know how many months we will live, and we are not given a minute longer. Peter preached this accusation on the day of Pentecost. This man, he's referring to Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You, and he's speaking to the Jews in Jerusalem, nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. And finally, Romans chapter 5, verse 6 reads, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God's sovereignty is comprehensive. 
that doesn't mean we'll always be able to, to discern his plans and purpose in the specific events of our lives. There will always be a tension that exists between God's decreed will and God's permissive will. There will be some things in our lives that will remain a total mystery. If you can't live with that tension, then this sovereignty of God's stuff will be of no comfort to you. But he is sovereign. And not because I say he's sovereign, or because I can explain all the details to you, but because it's taught throughout the pages of this book, from front to back, God is sovereign. Defining reality with the end in view. Reality number one. Jesus' glorification was time-sensitive. In the fullness of time, according to God's agenda, Look at verse 23 and 24 now. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. A metaphor drawn from the field of agriculture. Good old farmers would have come as a complete shock to the audience that Jesus was speaking to. Blew them away. After all, they had just welcomed him as their conquering king. Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now he's talking about an entirely different kind of kingship. A king who would Rule through his death. Don't miss Jesus' highlighter here. Truly, truly, I say to you. Remember, Jesus employs that phrase to ensure that we're paying attention. Listen to this. This is important. And not just his death, but his fruitfulness. That would come as a result of his death. Like a kernel of wheat, it dies to reproduce itself. The New Living Translation reads as follows, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Jesus is prepared to be planted in the soil and to die in order to produce a harvest of new lives among both Jews and non-Jews alike. Here's some food for thought. Turn with me to John chapter 15. Notice verse 1. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. 
If you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. We'll eventually get to this portion of John's account, I promise. But until then, let me just point out a couple of things. Number one, God is interested and absolutely committed to your and my fruitfulness. Granted, his pruning may not be pleasant, but the results are a plentiful harvest of new fruit. 30, 60, 100-fold. Secondly, the key to fruitfulness is abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we do that? How do we abide in Christ so that we bear fruit? Well, three things come immediately to mind. We need to get to know him as he has revealed himself in this book. We need to get to know him. Secondly, we need to live a holy life. Not a perfect life, but a life that strives to please God in word and deed, in our actions, in our reactions. John chapter 14, verse 21 talks about if we keep his word, we're demonstrating that we love him. And as we love him, then he discloses himself to us. Thirdly, engage. Not just attend, but engage in a localized expression, the body of Christ. A church like, for example, the Rock Community Church. Engage in it. Be commit, a church that's committed to a, a high view of God and a high view of Scripture. Three initiatives, practice, habits, or maybe even provisions that enable us to stay connected to the branch, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Defining reality with the end in view. Reality number one, Jesus' glorification is time-sensitive. Reality number two, Jesus' glorification included his death. Look at verse 25. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. So is Jesus suggesting that we hate life? Of course not. So what does this mean? Love life, lose it. Hate life, gain life eternal. Well, in this verse, Jesus is first and foremost taking that kernel of wheat illustration. He applies it first to himself. Obviously, previously he talked about his own physical death. But here he's applying it to the lives of his followers. 
For him, it meant a physical death. For his followers, it means dying to themselves. It means being willing to stop living just for ourselves, for for what we want out of life. For the fulfillment of our insatiable appetites. This is not the only time that Jesus taught this principle. In fact, it's found in all four Gospels. Let me read from the others. Matthew chapter 39, it goes this way. If you cling to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you'll find it. In Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 8, verse 36. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world? but forfeit your own soul. Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 14, verse 26. If you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father and your mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. This love-hate Jewish idiom, speaking to our, our preferences and our priorities. Reality number three, this life is seductive. John chapter 2, verses 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 to 17, speaks of this reality. Let's turn there together. First John chapter 2, beginning at verse 15. I think this offers a lot of food for thought. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Jesus was willing to die an absolutely horrible death in order that he, his life might, might produce fruit. Are we willing to die? To hate this life? Are we willing to stop living just for ourselves? Our selfish, self-centered lives so that we might gain life eternal. Life as God intended it to be lived, both in the here and now and forever. Remember Jesus' words in John chapter 10, verse 10? I came that they might have life and have it to the full. Listen again to the reason why the Apostle John wrote this gospel account of the life and ministry of Jesus. But these things have been written 
so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. You and I, we can have life in his name. But in order to receive that life, we have to admit, repent, believe, and ask. Admit that you are a sinner. Just like all of the rest of us are. There's no exceptions. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. And we need to repent, turn our back on that sin, hate our sin. And then we need to believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be, did what the scriptures say he did, and will do what he promised he will do. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, both physical death and spiritual death, which is separation from God. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. By asking Jesus Christ to become the Savior and leader of your life, you can escape that selfish, self-centered life that Jesus is talking about here. You begin to live your life in a way that, that pleases God. Romans chapter 10 reads, For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with his lips he confesses, resulting in salvation. If we truly want to live, we have to die. Die to our selfishness. Die to that sinful approach to life by establishing a relationship with God. On the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for us. You can do that in the quietness of your own heart right where you're sitting by admitting, repenting, believing, and asking. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, reads, He saved us, not on the basis of righteous things that we have done, but according to his mercy the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Defining reality with the end in view. Reality number one, Jesus' glorification was time sensitive. Reality number two, Jesus' glorification included his death. Reality number three, this life is seductive. But the good news is, God has provided a way to escape. Verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Reality number four, Jesus is served by those who will follow him. Luke chapter 9 verse 23 is probably one of my life verses. And he said to them all, if anyone will 
come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Deny yourself. That means surrendering the leadership of your life to Christ's lordship. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Well, the, the cross is not one of those pretty things that hang around our neck or on the top of a church. The cross is the thing that Jesus died on. And so he's talking about living a life of sacrifice. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, for the rest of your life. Living a life of sacrifice. Follow him. And we all know where that leads. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 makes it so clear. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We serve Jesus by following him to the point of giving up our selfishness and our self-centeredness and being even prepared to make an ultimate sacrifice. Follow him. Notice the two motivational promises here in verse 26. We will be in Jesus' presence. Number one. John chapter 14, verse 3, is, it's just around the corner. And Jesus prepares his disciples for his death by saying, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Secondly, the Father's honor. Who doesn't want to hear? We step across that threshold into the next life, that who doesn't want to hear? Well done, good and faithful servant. The Father's honor. Ken Hughes, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, wrote these words. Someone has said that follow me is the sum of our duty, and where I am is the sum of our reward. That's true goes on to quote from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, which says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That verse provides a great segue into the next reality that Jesus points to. Reality number five, living according to God's plans and purposes, is neither easy nor comfortable. Look at verse 27 and 28. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Folks, if you're looking for easy or comfortable, the Christian life is not where you want to land. It's just not. Remember the message a few weeks back was titled Gospel Ministry, Battleground or Playground? We concluded that living the Christian life, it's a battle. Every day, waking up, putting on our big boy pants, 
and engaging in the battle. Think of how Jesus' life on earth ended. What about his disciples? Tradition informs us that all 12 of them died a martyr's death. How about the Apostle Paul? He presents his summary, kind of a, a flyover of his life in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25 to 28. Want to be depressed? Listen to this. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was spent in, in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, danger from the city, dangers from the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me my concern for the church. And that's from the guy who wrote 13 of the 27 books of our New Testament. We may want to forfeit that kind of heroism. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, we have the, what's become known as the Faith Hall of Fame. First part of the, the chapter names all those recognizable heroes of the faith from past years. But have you ever noticed what happens in chapter or verse 36 through to the end of verse 38? Let me read it for you. After naming all these great saints that we all have heard about, he continues. Then there were others who experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom this world is not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and holes in the ground. God's plans and purposes are often neither easy nor comfortable. Doing the right thing, living as we know we ought to live, it can be a challenge. Jesus promised, in this world you will have trouble. We need to keep reading, but take courage. For I have overcome the world. Defining reality with the end in view, Jesus presented five realities, two directly related to himself, and three for you and I. His glorification included his death. His glorification was time-sensitive. This life that you and I experience, it's seductive. Jesus serve is served by those who follow him. And living according to God's plans and purposes, well, it's just neither easy nor comfortable. But allow me to close with this verse I've been trying to commit to memory 
It's found in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, and I leave it with you for your encouragement. He who spared not his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not with him also freely give us all things? Want to answer that question? It's a rhetorical question. Gave his own son. Of course, he's going to give us everything that we need to live a godly life, a life that's pleasing to him. Apart from him, we can't do it. With him, things become possible that are impossible with us alone. Jesus defined reality, staring at the end. With the end in full view. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who was prepared to continue with the end in view. In spite of knowing the pain, the suffering, and even the shame that awaited him, carrying the burdens of the sins of this world, and yet he defined present realities by keeping that end in full view. May we be encouraged to do the same. Enable us to avoid the seduction of this life we enjoy here in Canada. Forgiving, forgive us for taking for granted or for developing a sense of entitlement. May we define our present realities by keeping the end in view. This life is a mist that appears for a little while and then disappears. Until then, we're trusting you for all the courage and strength that will be required to remain faithful to our calling in Christ Jesus our Savior and our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.